Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I just landed on this planet, and my one wish is to record a Star Trek-related podcast. So hopefully this is real and not some kind of amusement park illusion. Well, I can't promise you anything in the nature of reality, but I can promise you that we are going to be discussing shore leave, which means that's what we're covering this week. And as always, we're not doing it alone. So say hello, Anthony. Hi, it's me, Anthony. (laughs) Better late than never. Hello, how are you doing this week? I'm doing very well. And I said excited to be back, but this is my first appearance on this podcast, I guess, because I was on talking who to you nine times. And this is my first one on here. So oh, you kept track. To talk Star Trek. <laughs> one of our three, or no, four, I'm sorry. Yeah, one of our four guests on Talking Who, the Doctor Who audio fiction podcast we did for years and years. <laughs> well, we're happy to invite you over into the world of the Federation. And it's lovely to have you here. As we always do when we have a guest on the podcast, we ask you what your relationship to Star Trek is and how you've got on with the show. So, yeah, what's, what's your history with Star Trek? Okay, so I didn't start watching Star Trek at all until I was in my early 20s. And part of that goes back to, picture if you will, the year is 1966. I'm not born yet. I won't be born for another 18 years. My dad hated Star Trek in third grade. My dad and his friends had this ongoing war where him and his other buddy loved Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And their two friends who were their enemy, who were their enemy friends, loved Star Trek and Batman. And so from childhood, my dad thought that those nerd shows were garbage and uh, the Westerns were the only good shows. So fast forward many years. And so my dad and I have a very good relationship, I should say. Like this story sounds like my dad and I are enemies or something. We're not. We get along very well. But. When I was in elementary school, my best friend loved Star Trek The Next Generation. They watched it every every week, him and his whole family. And Steven, my friend, told me that I should rent Star Trek Generations because it was awesome. Now, keep in mind that he was 10 or 11 at this time, but that's what he told me. Generations is awesome. We're at the video store, and I told my dad, Steven said this was good. My dad picked up the tape, put it back on the shelf, and said, no, we're not a Star Trek family. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't see Star Trek at all in my childhood because I wasn't allowed to watch it because we should watch Gunsmoke instead. So uh, fast forward to college, that's when I got into Doctor Who. And having become a big Doctor Who fan, my girlfriend at the time was like, oh, well, you should watch Star Trek. If you like Doctor Who, you should watch Star Trek. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. We're not a Star Trek family. And she's like, shut up. You'd like Star Trek. So I'm like, okay. And then I actually started with Deep Space Nine because that's what Carolyn, my my ex-girlfriend at the time, that's what she was really into. So I watched a bunch of DS9 with her and then we broke up, but I kept watching Star Trek and I went back and watched original series, then next gen, and then moved on from there. And I've seen most of it now. I'm not, I'm not quite caught up on some of the newer shows and i haven't seen all of enterprise but uh yeah so early 20s i just spent my early 20s watching star trek all day long you know and not a star trek family that must qualify as some kind of child abuse that's terrible (laughs) i'm glad you've been able to overcome your trauma and and embrace the world of the federation that's 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 a heartening and warm warm hearted story for us to kick off our 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 episode so um yeah and as we always do kev would you care to give us our summary all right in shore leave uh the enterprise crew is getting some shore leave uh, McCoy and Sulu start on the planet, and McCoy notices the White Rabbit and Alice from Alice in Wonderland, and things sort of kick off from there. Kirk and later Kirk and Yeoman Barrows, and later Spock joins the McCoy, Sulu, and two red shirts, if not literally, party. Uh, they run into various uh, fanciful characters, 
people from their past, but also Don Juan, a samurai, you know, normal things. Um, eventually, it just, yeah, there's a lot of running into visions and fantastical stuff until it comes out that they Kirk realizes the planet is feeding off of what they think about, and he orders him and his crew not to think. And so the caretaker of the planet shows up like, oh, wait, sorry, I realize what's going on here. And just gives them the actual instruction manual for using the wish-granting planet. And that's pretty much it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, okay. So, uh, Anthony, you're our guest, of course, this week. So uh, how did you find this episode? I love this one. It's such. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's so silly. And I just think it's so fun. So I, I should say, this is... This is actually the opposite of We Are Not a Star Trek Family because my four-year-old son, Miles, didn't have school yesterday, so I was home with him. So we watched this together, and he's never seen original series Star Trek. He's seen Prodigy only. And hmm. uh, so we were we fired it up, and he was very skeptical. And then as soon as the White Rabbit showed up, he was all in. And then he was Aww. disappointed for the rest of the episode that there weren't more Alice in Wonderland parts. But... It was really fun to watch it with him and see what he reacted to. So I enjoyed it on my own just because it's, it's like I said, I mean, I, I requested to be here for this one because I love this one. It's so silly. And it was really fun to see what Miles thought of it, too. So I had a great time all around. Uh, good. That guess is off to a start. Kev, how did you find it? Yeah, I also had a great time with this. It is, it's a very formless episode and it's. Like, I, I struggled to get a summary as I started realizing, oh, yeah, there's not much happens. Just uh, a bunch of issues happen in a way that you can figure out far before the characters do what's going on. But it is just kind of fun. It's just all the little incidents, more or less, are just have this energy to them. That's like, oh, this is like a pleasant, enjoyable time. It's like a lot of, like, like Anthony said, a lot of like nonsense is happening. And every time a new curveball was thrown, I would say, oh, that's pretty ridiculous. And that's pretty entertaining. Uh, yeah. I don't know. There's not much to it, but it is. I had a good time watching it for sure. Yeah, it's definitely an episode which is all all plot, no story. Um, a bunch of stuff happens, but it's it's sort of fairly um, unconnected. And, you know, as, as, as much uh, out of copyright characters as we could possibly squeeze into one mm. episode, they're, they're definitely going to turn up. Um, and I wish, wish I enjoyed this slightly more. I know that Shore Leave is a very well-regarded episode. It's meant to be a classic of the original. And that it's, it's, it's very, uh, yeah, it's very highly regarded. But I just, I never quite managed to get across that barrier there, there are really good moments in it i think um mccoy is great in this i love deforest kelly's performance here um it's probably the most screen time of any episode we've actually had him in so far and when he's doing his kind of charming sort of southern gentleman routine with yeoman barrows it's it's absolutely delightful um, yeah, i love that stuff I, all this stuff with Kirk and his ex-girlfriend is mm. not the episode's finest moment, I think it's fair to say. Um, and it's just, it's very kind of scattershot. I wish it was slightly um, tight, more tightly plotted. But then again, if it was more tightly plotted, it wouldn't have the whole kind of shaggy dog sort of element to it. And it is it is basically a Star Trek shaggy dog story. And I, I don't want to come out against that because that's very much something I should be behind. I just wish I enjoyed the actual details of it slightly more yeah I didn't, I didn't realize it was considered a classic classic i wouldn't go that far but yeah i don't know it's i think this is where my sort of the newbie aspect of this podcast is where it's valuable because i i don't know i just found this a very down the middle fun time without the weight of expectation i guess um kev your insights are yeah. always valuable <laughs> no no i guess that's what i'm saying it is valuable oh I, oh I see what you mean but yeah um i i also agree that this is such a standout for deforest kelly uh there's just so many specific acting choices he makes that really amp up the comedy in this episode in so many delightful ways i love when he is like his reaction to the white rabbit and alice stuff at the very beginning he plays it so deadly straight like he's just like in shock so he doesn't like overdo it he doesn't have a big reaction he has such a small reaction of just 
yeah, the rabbit's that way. I Not literally what he says, but just like, just processing what's in front of him. You can see it all on his face. Just the, what he's going through. And instead of doing the big over the top thing, he just sort of does the little in disbelief thing. I, I think I think I'm conveying this well, but you get it. It's such a funny moment to start off the episode. Yeah, he's he's kind of deadpanning basically, and and it, that's it's, what I was struggling to get to deadpan. <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a skill to be able to deadpan that well, uh, but but it's it's one of the great uh, one of the great abilities of DeForest Kelly is that he can just look at something and it's all there. Yeah, he he deadpans mm. perfectly. Well, and I think that the scenes with him and Yeoman Barrows are like that story. I mean, obviously there's some of the usual 60s sexism, right? I mean, like we, yeah. we, know, we know we're watching Star Trek, the original series here, right? Like she, you know, she dreams about being a lady to be protected and cared for or whatever. Um, but I think that their scenes together are very sweet. I think they have good chemistry. Yeah. Um, I think he takes a line, like when she tells him not to peek and he says, I'm a doctor. When I peek, it's in the line of duty. Like that's kind of yeah, and it's but it's like so much because of DeForest Kelly's delivery. Right, like he he says it in such a like kind of like you said cheeky manner that it that it doesn't seem creepy. It just seems like hey, I'm a doctor. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take advantage of that trust or whatever. And he's 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 so he. I mean, Doctor McCoy is my favorite character on the original series. Always was, and it's great to see him get so much to do and, and to like have a, a romantic relationship that doesn't happen to him yeah. very often. So yeah, I think, I think he's one of the, maybe the best thing about this episode. Yeah, I fully agree. I think the spec, since the specter has been raised, let's do our 60 sexism corner. Uh, not yet. The only really weird thing is like the ripped clothes early on. That's right, just that... a lot. <laughs> well, and it's so like, I, I don't think, I mean, I'm not like a Don Juan enthusiast, but when I right. think of, <laughs> excuse me, when I think of the character Don Juan, I don't think of like sexually assaults women and that's the fantasy, right? Yeah. Like, is that a thing? I know, no, it's, I got it. That was just it, weird. It's a really weird thing because it sort of slightly implies that, that that's what, what Yeoman Barrows wants. Because that's the right. whole point of this planet is that it's supposed to fulfill right. your wishes. So it comes the, the idea that like she wants to be kind of abused in that manner. But I, I, I don't think that's what the script is trying to say. I think it's more a question of that they haven't thought through the implications of of what it is that's been written, and that makes sense. This was a, this script was all over the place. It was being literally right. rewritten by uh, Gene Roddenberry when they were like on location. Um, and it's just, I think it's probably just one of those cases um, where, yeah, they, they, they've, they've written this, but they just don't consider what the actual final follow through is going to be, which is very different from the big sexy trombones that we get at the end when Dr. McCoy steps out with the two floozies who were working the cabaret club. Um, that is very deliberate. <laughs> so, right. yeah, we have to we have to we have to make note of that if For we're sure. doing our 66 is in order. Yeah. And. I mean, if we're talking about how it was written, the first draft was by Theodore Sturgeon, who's like a legendary sci-fi writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just saying, I knew it was supposed to be with Trek. I did not realize that Hewan wrote two episodes that made it to air, but like so many unpublished ones, apparently. Yeah, it wasn't a particularly harmonious relationship between Theodore Sturgeon and Gene Roddenberry, um, because um, Theodore Sturgeon had never written for television before. He was an acclaimed science fiction novelist. Um, an anthologist, but he was not TV writer, and it caused huge tensions uh, between yeah between Sturgeon and Roddenberry, and also Gene Alcune as well, which is one of the reasons that the the script is so kind of unfocused and scattershot. Again, it was being rewritten like basically right up until the moment somebody shouted action, um, and and for all that Theodore Sturgeon is such a, a classic writer, um, there were yeah there were a lot of problems yeah. with this script and its its development. I can see how a novelist taking the idea of a planet that can do anything. I mean, if the end result was we have to get a white rabbit costume, a tiger, a medieval knight costume, a plane. <laughs> like you can only imagine what the beginning result was of what he came up with. There's there's so much of this episode which is uh, which is like the old Monty Python sketch. Quick, everyone, we've been surrounded by stock footage. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Except for the Bengal tiger, because there was a tiger on yeah. set. Um, I mean, the first appearance is clearly stock footage, and then there's right. there's just this kind of weird cut where William Shatner is disquietingly close to this really big tiger. The the two bits of trivia I've pulled about the tiger are a William Shatner was the first upset and later relieved that he didn't have to wrestle the tiger. That was apparently the original plan. <laughs> and then the other bit is there's going to be an elephant in that scene too, and they even had a PA taking care or an assistant director, my bad, taking care of the elephant, and they never use the elephant and it would come up in cons all the time for the rest of that person's life. Sure. There, are, there are a few sentences in the English language, which bring more joy than William Shatner wrestles a tiger. Mm. Yeah. If only, <laughs> I mean, if only, if, if only, well, I just want to yeah. say the thing is, if he did that, we might not have a William Shatner anymore. All right. You go, Anthony. <laughs> right. Um, well, I was just going to say, I mentioned that I watched this with my four year old son and the tiger was the other thing that he was really into. Like, he loved the Alice in Wonderland. Ah, I bet. And then as soon as the tiger showed up, he was just like, whoa. And lo- like, just every time they'd cut away, he'd just be like, show me the tiger. That's <laughs> <laughs> all he cared about. So it, so it works for little kids. I'll say that. And I thought it was fun, too. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a while ago that there were a couple of red shirts. So did you, did you, have you done Balance of Terror yet? I guess not. Oh, wait, we have. That was the most recent week. I might have missed. Is that? No, that can't be the same married couple because one of them died. No, but, no, <laughs> How but are they in Balance of Terror? No, but it's her, though. It's Martine. It's the, the, the oh. woman is the same woman, and she's playing the same character officially. So either okay. she... I, I must... And, and that's what... Because I, I, I had forgotten that. Because I just watched Balance of Terror yeah. right, right after I watched that uh, Strange New Worlds finale. That is all, uh, mm-hmm. all about balance of terror, and I had right. totally forgotten that she was. But I guess she's like already moved on to a new boyfriend with her new husband in the. Yeah, game. I, I think that's why I didn't clock it was the same person <laughs> because oh wow that she moved on quick then. Well, we don't yeah. know that it's quick. I mean, we do get all that stuff at the start right. of the episode about how it's been months and months that they've been on duty and all the rest of it. And like, it, far be it from me to judge how long it should or shouldn't take somebody to get over the grief. Of course, process, agree. but, of course, of but course. there is there is at least a line in there that implies that there's some kind of distance between the two episodes. And again, right. this this reads differently if you're watching stuff in production order. Uh, as opposed to broadcast order. Right. And, but there is something in I, there to suggest that, you know, some time has passed. Right. Well, and also I think what's probably true is they just had an actress that they liked, so they used her again. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah that would I be the other solution, of course. I, yeah. I can't imagine that there was any think, thought given to like, well, we need to we need to show the emotional life of crewman Angela Martine, you know, at this time. Right. After, after the episode Bounce of Terror. Yeah, and they weren't intending these episodes to air back to back. Like that was literally the last episode we did because we were doing airing order was Balance of Terror. So oh, sure. yeah, yeah. that's I think that the contrast sense. stands out like extra strong in my mind. But yeah, I mean, they, I, I did like seeing Angela Martin again. And I like Esteban Rodriguez. Uh, Perry Lopez plays him. And uh, yeah, they were very like... They're not literally wearing red shirts, but that's essentially the function they are fulfilling. Um, and they were very fun. They're like good, like just doing that business of someone to exposit to and deliver the exposition and be freaked out while Kirk King retain is cool. Yeah, they do a good job in that. And um, given that this script was um, sort of scattershot in the way that it was put together, um, I think it is a testament to how well um, those those actors are able to cope with it. Um, and, and sort of speaking of stepping into uh, somebody else's role, I hope this is, I'm pretty sure this is the last time we have to mention this. Um, but we have a female yeoman present in this episode, uh, yeoman Tonia Barrows, um, who's very, very conspicuously not yeoman Janice Rand. Um, because she has been dropped by this stage. Um, and it's so obvious how much that role mm, yeah, was written I kinda... for uh, Grace Lee mm. Whitney. And like Emily Banks does a really good job with the role, of course, and it would read a bit weird with the McCoy stuff um, 
if it had been Yeoman Rand. But then again, when it was Yeoman Rand, um, the original script had that scene uh, and a lot of the kind of closeness between her and Kirk rather than um, Barrows and McCoy. And I think the script definitely benefits from the fact that it doesn't have like the Kirk and, and Rand kind of thing hanging over it. But at the same time, it's so obvious that that was just like, um, you know, Yeoman Rand with the with the serial numbers filed off. And I don't mean that in any way as an insult to, to Emily Banks because she does well with the role. Um, but it's just so obviously how somebody's, somebody else has just been effortlessly sort of dropped in now that, now that poor old Grace Lee Whitney has been sort of pushed off to one side. Right. Yeah. So then they had to find something else for Kurt to do. And that's why we have the ex-girlfriend and the ex-bully showing up. Oh, the and, ex-bully. <laughs> well, be, be, before mm. before we get into the details of, of Finnegan, I was wondering, is it Finnegan, Finnegan isn't it? Finnegan. No, Finnegan. Finnegan. Yeah, they right go the for time. the full Finnegan. Um, they, they do the most cliche Finnegan, thing possible. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the fact that he's not all Finnegan is a miracle. Right, right. Um, Before we get into that, though, I wanted to ask, have either of you read Mars is Heaven by Ray Bradbury? No. I'm, I need to Don't catch up more on classic science fiction. So this is a short story from 1948, and Kirk's story in this episode feels like it's lift, lifted from that short story to me. I, I couldn't find any evidence that that's the case, but it's about a group of astronauts going to the first landing on Mars. And when they get there, they find like their dead friends and relatives are there. And uh, I mean, spo spoilers for a 75 year old short story, but it turns out that like, that's how the Martians like reel in their, their victims is they like read their mind, project the people that they want to see to get them to trust them. Right. And that's what both of these stories with Kirk feel like to me is that same, like, you, Oh, here you are on a strange planet. Here's people from your past, you know? So I, I don't know. I don't know if it was inspired mm -hmm. by it or not. Wouldn't surprise me if it was. I mean, it's a it's a Ray Bradbury story. It's not it's not you know some right. something obscure. Anyway, yeah. Let's talk about Finnegan. How about that guy? Yeah, I, I JG tipped his hand a little bit before we started recording that he's not a fan. Sorry, to, I guess. Sorry, to <laughs> That's I just the want to say the lightest way that you could possibly have put that. <laughs> but I, it sounds like you're lied by him, Anthony. It's all to say I am somewhere in the middle. I. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like Bruce Mars. I think he's doing a really fun that's, job. That's the um, thing. I think he, he seems like he's having so much fun is the thing. Yeah. I wish this wasn't like the third or fourth case of Star Trek being weirdly anti-Irish. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Right. yeah. We're only 15 sense, episodes yeah. in. <laughs> but yeah, um, he's... Yeah, it's he's a like the actor makes him a fun presence in what could have been a very irritating yeah. one for me. Uh, whereas I, I I am the opposite of that. I I think he's 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 awful. Uh, just just the worst thing <laughs> about this episode for me is is Finnegan. Um, yeah, like I said, you were very polite about the way that I was referring to the character. There was there may have been some profanity involved. Um, I hate everything about it. I hate the stupid little Irish jig in the soundtrack. I hate the cliche of it. I hate the jumping up and down like he's a bloody leprechaun. Everything about Finnegan yeah, it's just ridiculous. drives my nails into the palms of my hand. It makes my fillings rattle. It makes my face crunch up like a big scrunchy ball of paper. I hate Finnegan. That is all I have to say on the subject. I should quietly sit here now and say nothing more. Sure. So, so I'll just say one more thing, which is that in my notes, here's exactly what I put. Bruce Mars is having such a great time as Finnegan, fantastically over the top. Bring back Finnegan on Strange New Worlds. That's, <laughs> that's what I wrote down. Oh, I don't want to have to quit that show. <laughs> uh, just no, like, um, obviously. I, like, that would be a fun thing. He graduates the academy and now he's doing pranks on the Enterprise. Yeah. Uh, I could see it. Right. Like, presu yeah. Presumably he's in Starfleet, right? Like, and right. so, anyways. Um, but, but I'll say this then. Whether whether you like Finnegan or not, at least he registers, and I don't think Ruth really does. Kirk's ex girlfriend, who's in this right. episode, like she's just kind of there for a couple of scenes, and then like we get that weird thing at the end where Kirk is like, "Oh, I'm gonna go hang out with this robot of my ex girlfriend for a few days." Yeah, wink, wink. <laughs> special time with me and my robot. It's at least creepy. It's at the bare minimum, like a weird thing to do. To be like this, 
weird right. illusion robot whatever looks like my ex-girlfriend eh i'm gonna have a good time here it's a no it's uh, deeply unpleasant. And yeah, I think and, the well, other thing about it is, is that we never get any sense of her as an individual. All she, like the most striking no, thing about Ruth is her dress because it's got that one black, one white side to it. It's such a, it's such a weird and, and oh, and she's got those triangular earrings, which are deeply distracting as well. But there's nothing about her. She's got no personality. She's got no like, like I do really despise Finnegan with every fiber of my being. But like you say, he registers. He does have a personality deeply grating and annoying though it is. Like Ruth is just a blank slate. The 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 um the robot knight that the, the, they poke and point out is basically a showroom dummy. Like that has more personality. Right. Yeah. Well and I th- I think it's one of those things where if if they could go back and make Star Trek like if they could go back and worry about continuity and make the whole thing make sense, if they could do like a retcon now, then Ruth would be Carol Marcus or something, right? But yeah, exactly, because right. that character doesn't exist. You know, uh, I will say yeah. that there, I, 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 I don't know how much you want to hear about Next Generation or not, Kev. But there I mean, is an I, episode I of know Next a Generation. fair bit. Well, there's so there's an episode uh, that deals with this. There's an episode that deals with this kind of thing. With like, I'm I'm in love with the with the hologram in that version in that instance version oh, of this real life. Person. I've heard of this. And yes. then the real life person is horrified, you know. Um, yeah, and that that actually shows how it would feel to be to be treated that way as right. an object by a person. So that that's a much better take on a fairly similar stuff. Like that episode doesn't end with a Jordy being like, "Well, heading back in there." Wink, wink. You know. <laughs> So. I mean, I'm glad it doesn't. But yeah, I've, I've heard of that story and can't wait to get there sometime in the 2030s. But yeah, um, right. it's, yeah, the Ruth stuff doesn't register. Like you said, the fitting and stuff does. And even the fight at the end, like it's a fun fight, even if it's like doesn't have much basis in any story or anything like that. It, it kind of reminds what? me of like, it's just saying, it reminds me of, maybe this is showing my age and my bad taste when I was young, but it reminds me of, like, when Family Guy would do the random fights with the giant chicken. It's just, like, the enemy comes out of nowhere, and there's this long, dragged-out fist fight, and it's like, all right, all right, let's get back to the story now. Oh, well, you know, I was going to say that it reminds me of the fight between... Um, Keith David and Roddy Rowdy Piper, Rowdy Rowdy Piper in Oh, Game yeah. Game. That's a much you know, classier reference, just... that... What I was saying was drawing from, clearly. Right, right. Yeah, where it's just kind of like, there's no reason for this fight to be this long. Like, there's not really any reason for these two characters to be in a fist fight in the first place. But but here it is for, you know, eight minutes or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, like the They Live fight, like, almost the going on so long is comical. And the fight itself is, like, well choreographed and fun. So you just kind of don't mind? It's just like, oh, yeah, this is good. Right, agreed. I will say one thing for this episode, that it, it is very well directed. Yeah. Um, it, 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 there's a lot of, it was directed by Robert Sparr, um, who um, did not win a lot of friends for the way that he directed this episode. But oh. he, he um, does a really good job with it because he actually gets to go out on location. And this is, I think I'm right in saying, only the second time We've been on location during the episodes that we've watched. I think the only other one was Mary, if I remember correctly. And and he does make like full use of of his locations. I mean, now it's incredibly obvious that they're everybody's favorite, Fasky's Rock. Um, and that's fine. But you know, like all the stuff in the glade, and there's lots of long tracking shots, and I kind of, you know, the camera's following Kirk as he's running down the thing. It's it's good stuff. Right. There was, I honestly, I gasped slightly at, there's one shot of right after Kirk uh, gets down to the plant, I think, or yeah, I think it's Kirk and Barrows and McCoy running. It's like a long tracking shot. It looks great. Yeah. I was, I was really impressed. Yeah. And they just found a great place to shoot in. Like you, if the script was calling for this idyllic, like little meadow to have all this take place in, they found a very idyllic meadow. It's really good. Right. So can we can we talk about Mr. Spock? Sure, yeah, yeah. I was struggling for the next thing to talk about, so it's a great subject. Um 
Spock is great in this episode. I love how he like just I don't know. Well, like you, you mentioned more so than usual. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the intro that uh, or maybe earlier, just when we were discussing earlier, you said that it's like with the audience figures out way before the characters do what's going on, obviously. And I love that halfway through the episode, Mr. Spock beams down and he's just like, obviously, all of this is robots. Even the plant life mm-hmm. is robots. Like, that's just like the first thing he does as soon as he gets there. It's great. What a guy. Yeah. I I like that it also just doesn't affect him ever. He never has, like, an irrational wish that would lead him to revel- reliving something or whatever. He's just there for the ride and is like, this is also silly. It's it's a great contrast to everything else going on. Right. Well, and and even at the beginning when they're talking about the concept of, of R&R, and he's just like, oh, it's ridiculous to rest by running around. My On my planet, we rest by sleeping. Yeah. And I think that's great. Well, and, and his gotcha yeah. moment with Kirk as well, when, you know, he's, 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 trying, to, uh, he's trying to persuade Kirk uh, to go down to the planet. And he realizes the only way that he can is to use his, well, right. logic the, like against him. facts. Well, you know, I, I would order any person like this down to the planet. Yeah, well, that's great. You. Oh, there it was. <laughs> damn it. Right, fine, go. <laughs> Such a great Not use really of the character. Not really a Spock moment, more of a Kirk one, but I love the very early moment where Kirk has, says there's a kink in my back and the yeoman starts like massaging it out and he assumes it's Spock doing it. Like, ah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is where Slash comes from. This is the, like, it's the most slashable moment that I think right, we've seen yeah. so I, far. I had that in my notes too. Is this moment the birth of Slash Vic? Because it sure feels like it is. God, I... Mm-hmm. I think there might have been one or two moments in earlier episodes that also faint in this direction, but most slashable yet is definitely the thing. Yeah. Well, just the fact that he's like, he's like, go a little deeper, and then he realizes it's not Spock and asks her to stop. <laughs> like, that's why. Yeah, that's he so wanted good. it to be Spock. I like. <laughs> that couldn't have been on their minds when they were writing it. Like, I don't know. Maybe we're not giving Theodore Sturgeon or whoever enough credit. But, like, it's just, you. I don't know. I guess I, I, I can't transport my brain 60 years into the past or whatever. So I can't say whether or not queer baiting could exist in the minds of these six of these uh, older white men. But it's just, yeah, it's older straight men, I should say, is more relevant, applicable there. But, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it was just such a good moment. So another character we haven't talked about is Sulu, who gets kind of a subplot in this, but doesn't really get much to do. We just like he just like excitedly shoots a gun and talks about how twentieth century guns are so fun or whatever. But Takei is really good in this. He's very fun. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of those performances where you can really see that the character is 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 being portrayed right. by somebody who's paying attention because a lot a lot of Sulu's stuff is kind of a bit. I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word hackneyed here, but particularly like, yeah. oh, he's the Asian character, so of course he's attacked by right. a samurai or whatever. Like, it could be so hacky. Um, but Sulu kind of, um, he kind of leans into it. And, you know, we get a little bit of a resurgence of the right. fact that he's interested in botany. So, you know, that that's kind of a callback to earlier stuff and, and all the rest of it. And all throughout it, Takai is just really playing close attention to the way that he's he's playing the character and yeah like even the even the fight with the the samurai is is such a cliche but it you know like he looks like he's enjoying it and and that's really a choice from i would assume takai himself because he could have played it as scared or he could have played it as you know intimidated or whatever but he doesn't he plays it like he's kind of enjoying um, having this thing, but yet later on he has the opportunity to run around. He's very loyal. He's doing the whole thing, um, and and uh, it's just a it's just a really lovely performance from Takai, even though it's sort of relatively understated. Yeah, well, and I think that he, I think it goes along with Naked Time when he gets to fence and all that. Like, I think whether 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 this. You know, from a script perspective, I don't know that they were thinking about it, but Takei probably was that like he, he's Sulu is like a very physical person. He's interested right. in in combat and you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it all it all works as an overall characterization. Yeah, I think in general, all the characters are very well 
thought through at this point. And that might be going through his outside writer being rewritten by a staff writer being rewritten by Gene Roddenberry himself. But it definitely feels like whoever had their fingers on which parts of the draft knew these characters well. McCoy, Spock, Kirk, Sulu, even generic human who's clear supposed to be Rand feels in character with human Rand. Like they all feel like they're very much of a piece of who they're so of who they are. Like there's nothing out of character, but more to the point, as we've been discussing, there's a lot of moments that are very in character, like more than just neutral, but like actively strengthening what qualities you know about these characters. Right. Such as Uhura doesn't get to go down to the planet and just has to sit in her chair. That's very in character. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. I, I, I love Uhura. I wish she got more to do, you know? Well, and of course, and Scotty, we don't even see. Yeah, I mean, season one, they were still figuring out who their regular cast was. I mean, we had two episodes with the last Irish stereotype hanging around. So, yeah. Speaking of, speaking of sort of characters who are kind of hanging around and the fact that we don't have a particularly well-established regular cast, Here's a question for you. If you were watching this in 1966 and didn't know what was going to happen in the future, do you think McCoy's death would land? Or do you think it's just a bit of a, a like, like clearly a cheap faint? Because that's the moment that the episode is supposed to pivot around, right? right. That's the moment where, you know, all this kind of whimsy and, and big lacy flowing hats and dresses and rabbits and all this kind of stuff and, and Alice in Wonderland all suddenly is meant to take this incredibly abrupt kind of dogleg into kind of like real drama where, oh my God, like our chief surgeon has just been killed. Like Kirk gives a a, a captain's log entry where he's, he gets the big dramatic kind of like our chief surgeon and my friend has been killed. Do you, do you think that would have landed first time out? I think it depends on how much. Yeah. I think I'm going to the same conclusion. It's like, because his name is not in the opening credits. I don't know how many TV Guide covers he was on. If this is the first episode you're watching, you're no reason to think DeForest Kelly is not a guest star who is disposable. And even if this is... Maybe if it's the 15th episode you're watching, like if you're watching it in order as it's airing, then you're a little more skeptical because he's been such a major part of the show. But even still, I mean, shows up to the 90s, like another Star Trek show would not be above offhand killing a regular cast member just for a random reason. Hello, Tasha. Yeah, that's yeah exactly what I'm alluding to. Um, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, but I, but I, I do think that Yeoman Barrow's breakdown after he dies would probably have really helped sell it. Like she really gets to kind of go through an emotional ringer over it. And like, obviously we know now that yeah. he's fine. I mean, and even he, he's more than fine by the, the time he emerges the way that at he the just end. Comes strolling out at the end and he's like, never mind, Jim. They saw, so-. right. He's just like, he's just like, never mind, Jim. They solved death. They fixed me up like Woody in Toy Story 2. And now I'm fine. <laughs> you know, but, but I do think that that the immediate aftermath of it really does help make it effective and probably made it like, there's no re. I think you're watching TV in 1966. There's no reason to assume that that they're going to reverse death. I don't know. Right. I mean, yeah, that's the idea of needing investment in characters long term and needing their arcs come to a conclusion. Not that this is foreign. We were just talking about how well characterized these people are and will continue to be. But like the idea of a show feels obligated to fulfill an audience expectation of character investment. I don't know is like that common at the time. Like people didn't get grand send-offs and their characters are written off. So if you're watching and people didn't know much about TV production in general, I don't think unless you're like reading all the fan magazines and tracking them down. So yeah, I don't think people bat like, I think it just works as a stake raising maneuver in a legitimate way, killing off quote unquote, killing off McCoy. Yeah, I think it's an effective moment within the script, but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's one of those ones that I can't I can't separate my knowledge from the series with how it's supposed to work dramatically. It's it's a really yeah. it's a really difficult one. I mean, we've had a couple of um, characters who have spanned sort of two or three episodes with Yeoman Rand, sort of you know quite a few episodes who have simply vanished without without any kind of indication of why. 
Um, and so the idea that Kirk, uh, you know, is genuinely lamenting the death of his close friend isn't that hard to buy. But at the same time, I don't know. It's it's such, you know, like like they gloss over his death incredibly quickly. And I think that, un- unfortunately, right. like, I agree with what you said, Anthony. I think, I think the reactions to it immediately afterwards really do help sell it. Um, and that works well. But just like, like, you know, like five minutes later, Kirk's flirting with his apparent ex-girlfriend and, you know, they have other mysteries to solve. And it did, they just gloss over it in the quickest possible right. way. And I think that undermines it. So I think, yeah, a little bit, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. So here's another thing that Star Trek did a lot. We end this episode with a godlike being showing up, the caretaker. How many, how many of those have you seen so far? You know... I don't know, not as many as I know there's going to be. Where no man has gone before. Charlie X. Yep. Yeah. I Charlie the episode X, list now. Right? That might be it. Charlie well, X, well, oh yeah, that does X. count. Square of Gothos hasn't happened yeah. yet, right? That's coming up. No, no. Yeah, I think this is our third, or unless you got Corbinite Maneuver. or Yeah, that's the right one I'm thinking of. Corbinite Maneuver and the weird little Clint Howard guy in that as a godlike being. <laughs> right. Much more of an edge case. I'm sure you you discussed this. A role that he reprised on William Shatner's Comedy Central roast. (laughs) I did not discuss. We did not discuss that. Did not know that. That's amazing. Uh, Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's where it was. Yeah, Um, yeah, it sure was. Baylock. Yep, he sure did. 2006. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, I'm glad we got that tidbit into the podcast at somewhere, some point. Sure. But at least, yeah, yeah. at least this kind of slightly subverts the idea of godlike beings, because most of the godlike beings that we encounter in Star Trek are the kind of, well, we are going to take over the universe. We are going to enslave you. We are going to make you do this thing that we want. Right. Whereas this one, it's like, you know, you, could, you guys can just go have a nice time. That's 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 all right. And there's no. Like, there's no consequence, there's no <laughs> ironic kind of, well, unless you want to count, you know, Kirk going off with his deeply creepy robot ex-girlfriend. Um, you know, like, there's no, there's, there's, but the, within, the, within, the, within the four walls of the episode, shall we say, there's no, there's no consequence, there's no dramatic reveal, there's no reversal. Right. It's just like, they want you to have a nice time. I can't immediately think of another kind of godlike being that falls into that category. So it's kind of like, that is definitely one of the things this episode has in its favor. It, it is subverting that kind of cliche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that also it's, he's just benevolent and just kind of like befuddled. Like, like I said, he's like giving the instruction yeah. manual at the end. It's a literal deus ex machina ending where it's just, well, we, I mean, it's not like it's, unearned or doesn't fit with the already fantastical stuff we've already come up with it's like well this is the only thing that makes sense i don't mean use the not gonna have a as a detriment it just is what it is and yeah it is kind of funny that he is just there to sort of just explain the premise of the weird setting they've landed in and he just forgot to do it at the beginning it's it's another mode of comedy really it's it ends on a nice light note and sort of wraps up in a neat bow. Like you could be a little more skilled, I guess, in constructing the conclusion of the story, but it doesn't require that either. It doesn't rub me the wrong way. Yeah. Like I said, this, the whole episode is so silly that like, I'm fine with that being the ending. It's like, oops, didn't, didn't tell you how to use the planet. Here you go. Sure. See you. See you next week, everybody. Well, absolutely. And that's definitely not the worst ending a Star Trek episode can have. We will absolutely find other examples of that going forward. But for now, I think we can probably wrap that one up for there and move on to ratings. So, Anthony, what would you like to give this one? I'll give it an 8 out of 10. I mean, it, like like we discussed, it's not perfect. It's it's wonky. It's a bunch of nonsense. But it's so much fun. I love it. So I'm, I'm going with 8. I'm edging in slightly under at 7. Uh... Yeah, but yeah, I most of the same opinion. It's like it's wacky nonsense that I mostly vibed with. I'm going to give it. Oh, no, should I give it five and a half or six? I know Kev is morally opposed to half points, but I still feel 
Six. I'll give it six. Like I, I, I'm really happy that everybody involved in this has had a nice time. I, I wish I enjoyed it as much as they did. Yeah, it's a nice synchrosity. Eight, seven, six. We all line up like that. I like it. Fair enough. All right. Well, we can probably leave this episode there for now and move on to recommendations. Anthony, what would you like to recommend? So every year, as as we're recording this, it's November thirteenth. And every year during November, I try to watch a bunch of documentaries. I call it Nonfiction November. And this year, I decided that it would be fun to finally get around to watching this series documentary now, which originally aired on IFC. I think the new season is only on AMC Plus here in the U.S. at least. Um, it, I don't think it's even airing on on cable television anymore. I, but so this is a I show. Think it, what's sorry. That, Kev? interrupt i just i think it is airing on ifc but like they're not promoting it on ifc and the episodes are going on amc plus oh, a week okay, early anyways okay. so it's effectively yeah right okay so that's 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 where you can most easily find it um but this is a show that bill Hader and fred armison and seth myers created and i'm not i'm not a fan of of armison as an actor which is the main reason i put it off for for many years um but i finally gotten around to it and it's really great it's fantastic what they do is every week, they don't just do a parody of a documentary. They choose a specific famous documentary and do a really detailed, loving parody of it. Like nailing small details and little jokes that only make sense if you've seen the documentary. So I really would recommend doing it the way I'm doing it now, which is if I haven't seen the original, I'm trying to watch it first for the most part so that I really get all those, all those small jokes. Um, a couple of standouts are the season three episode co-op original cast album, which is a parody of the, of the 1970 company original cast album documentary. And so they, I mean, they had to like write an entire, you know, Sondheim esque song score for this very silly 22 minutes of television. And it, it works on that level. It works as a Sondheim parody. It works as a parody of the, of the documentary about the recording session of that cast album and it works just as as comedy because they're like there are jokes in it that are, you know aren't referring to specific things in the documentary, but that's one that I thought was really funny. One that I don't think you need to have seen the original and it still works really well is the episode Juan likes chicken and rice, which is a parody of Jiro Dreams of Sushi, a documentary about a Japanese an old Japanese man who's been running a sushi restaurant for fifty years. And in that movie, there is a very small, very short scene where his younger son, we find out that his younger son runs a restaurant that serves the same food in a more casual atmosphere. So in the Documentary Now episode, they take that, which is just like a very small detail in the original movie, and make it this giant subplot about how he says his son is dead because he opened a fun restaurant that people like going to. And so we see the difference between the dad's restaurant where if he can't catch a chicken and kill it in the morning, he won't serve chicken that day. And if, if his assistant uh, played, played by Harvey Gian from what we do in the shadows, if his assistant doesn't cut bananas in half perfectly, he'll throw the banana away. And then we see the son's restaurant where he'll give you any sauce on your, he'll put any sauce on your chicken that you want, including barbecue sauce, teriyaki or Skittles. So uh, it's all really silly, but it's so much fun to see how much attention they pay to the original movie and then how they twist it in, in fun and interesting ways. So documentary now streaming on AMC plus that's my recommendation. Yeah, that's not, not in a row, but like this is the second AMC plus show with interview with the vampire that's been recommended on talking track, which is oh, right? now we have to start. Yeah. <laughs> AMC Plus, it's making moves. It's growing in power. Um, there's some other good shows on it, too. I mean, okay. I've subscribed to it, so I should check those other shows out. I've also been watching the new season documentary now. I watched the third season as it was airing. I still haven't watched most of the first two seasons because I was wanting to do the same thing. We're like, well, I should watch the documentary first. And then that means I never got around to it. <laughs> so I should just go back and, yeah, um, watch those older episodes. But, yeah, it's... So, Documentary Now is so funny. It's an incredible show. Uh, I highly recommend it as well. Um, I am going to recommend 
Well, I don't know if you've gotten to this part, Anthony, but uh, Kate Blanchett shows up in season three and season four of Documentary Now in two separate episodes. And I'm also going to recommend a Kate Blanchett. She's so funny. It's It's incredible they got her. And it's amazing how good she is, as she always is. Sure. But right, that's the like, thing, especially yeah. a standout. Yeah, and I'm gonna recommend another recent Kate Blanchett work, which is the movie Tar, um, written and directed by Todd Field, who did the Sundance hits In the Bedroom and Little Children, acted in movies like Eyes Wide Shut, and some other big. Uh, sort of notable artsy film fair uh, invented big league chew randomly, which is how he can afford to uh, <laughs> take long breaks in writing, directing various movies. True story. Look it up. Uh, Tar so is weird. his most recent movie after a sort of, yeah, after a long time, not getting projects funded and moving or whatever he has made, he made this movie written during the pandemic and shot recently. And it came together really quickly about Kate Blanchett playing a conductor and composer in Berlin who is about to finish her magnum opus of composing all of Mahler's symphonies. And then things start coming out about her life that people start putting up with her behavior less and less. It is a sort of a parable about cancel culture. This is a crass way to describe it. It's, in a way, it is about this character being quote-unquote canceled, but such a meaningless term nowadays. It's, it's just about, it's about power, how it can be abused, how it can be used, and what happens when in this sort of more modern society we're building, when people put up with it less and finally hit a breaking point with these difficult people. And it's, an, it's a very interesting character. It's a very long movie. It is a little over two and a half hours, but yet you don't feel it because it is so engrossing. Blanchett's performance is incredible. It, if she didn't already have two Oscars, she'd be a shoe-in for this year. It's a, it's a really a barn-burning performance. Um, she fully absorbs this character. I keep joking that it should be her Pee Wee Herman or Jiminy Glick, just someone she always comes back to, because it really does feel like that much of a lived-in and truly real performance. Um, it's, yeah, she, and it, it's, it's so well thought through. Uh, Noemi Merlant from Portrait of a Girl on Fire and Nina Haas from Phoenix, among other movies, but those are the ones I know them from. Uh, They're very good in the movie as her assistant and her wife, respectively. Uh, Julian Glover is great in it in a little role. Mark Strong is great in it in a little role. And yeah, but it's mostly just about this woman sort of making her way through her weird little world. And it's, yeah, I can't really say much more about it, I guess, without spoiling it. But I think you can also kind of figure out where it goes from how I described it. It's just a very engrossing film. Uh, I think it might still be playing in theaters. Well, not when you listen to this, it won't be playing in theaters. It'll probably be available for rental soon and maybe making its way through European distribution, UK and the rest. Uh, and yeah, go out and see it. It's truly an uh, engrossing movie. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That sounds like a far, far more uh, interesting recommendation than the one I'm going to give. I am going to retread our old territory, which means I'm going to step back into the world of Doctor Who and recommend The Power of the Doctor, which is Jodie Whittaker's final episode. I really enjoyed this when I watched it the first time around. I thought it was good fun. It's very messy. It's definitely not, you know, what anybody would nudge up towards calling coherent. But it's good fun. It had lots of sort of <laughs> narrative pace to it. It's full of energy. Uh, there's there's sort of past references without it being too indulgent. There's lots of sort of future stuff. It's just a really fun kind of ride. And then I watched it again, and that was the moment that I kind of fell in love with it. I think it's really good. I I know that there are um, shortfalls, and we like the episode with Star Trek we've just been talking about is is a Shaggy Dog story. And honestly, this isn't that much different. Um, but there's just such a such a joie de vivre about it that you never get from Chibnall's writing. It's the best possible case that we could hope for, I think, for, for Jodie Whittaker's exit being written by Chris Chibnall. 
that obviously does come with major caveats and very, very many quotation marks. But nevertheless, it's still probably the best we could possibly have hoped for. I think it's notable for the stuff that isn't there as well. So it's not bogged down by timeless child nonsense. And there isn't any great attempt at drawing all those kind of narrative points to a close because nobody was interested in them in the first place. So very correctly, they're set to one side. Uh, we get lots of previous doctors coming back, which is lovely, but they're actually well used. They're not just gratuitous. So the whole thing about, um, you know, the 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 13th doctor being in her own mind as as she's being regenerated is great uh the the rippling images of the different doctors that's all well done but each doctor gets to have a little bit of time with their own companions sylvester mccoy is so good in his couple of scenes especially with ace mm. um and 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 ace yeah, yeah. Is sort of um you know sort of enunciating her regret about the distance between them um uh janet fielding and uh, peter davison together they're great as well real spark there um and there's some proper tension it's particularly the first time the the, the um the old companions meet the new ones and, and we get that line about we're who you used to be and it's so sharp in a way that that, that Chibnall just doesn't normally write like that. It's great. We get a few, of course, Bradley Walsh is back. That's lovely. Um, uh, I don't know. There's just so much about it. It is messy. It doesn't quite all come together, but it's fine. I love the moment of uh, the Doctor and Yaz on top of the TARDIS sharing ice cream. I kind of, I know it's not a, I know this isn't going to be a popular opinion, but I like the fact that they don't have a kiss at the end um, because at the end of, and I don't blame anybody for not remembering this because Legend of the Sea Devil was terrible. Um, but right at the end of that, like the Doctor closes that down very kindly, but very unquestionably. And what's left at the end of it is the love of friendship rather than the love that comes from... Um, like passion or a relationship and that kind of thing. And I think that's kind of important as well, that people don't, it doesn't have to be this kind of grandiose um, sort of, you know, love across the edges, you know, kind of uh, the Doctor and Rose kind of thing. Instead, it's a quieter kind of love. And that's the whole thing about Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. She's a quiet Doctor, and we're not used to that in the 21st century. I think there's a very good parallel to be drawn between Jodie Whittaker and, and Peter Davison, who's also a very quiet Doctor well and i love the fact that at the end the moment that judy whittaker's doctor amanda gills yes share is is this moment of quietness it's it's just sharing an ice cream the love between them is so obvious and it's so clear but it doesn't have to go down the obvious kind of line as well i think that's a really interesting piece of restraint and i i actually i think that's a better choice rather than having them go for the obvious kind of kiss or whatever um, I think if the relationship had been longer established, the kiss would be the right thing. But given the way that it's gone and given what's happened, in, particularly in the previous story, I think that was the right approach to take. So, yeah, I'm I'm rambling and this is a messy kind of recommendation, but that's fine. It's a messy kind of story. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly love The Power of the Doctor. And I'm so glad that it is what it is. Yeah, of course it could be better. Yeah, of course it could be more coherent. But if we have to wrap up Jodie Whittaker's episode, like the, uh, or her time, I should say, that's the best we can hope for. I think she's brilliant in it. I loved every second that Jodie is on screen during this. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to the future. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Power of the Doctor. Oh, man. So we were, we were talking. Really be good in it. Sorry, just talk about Sebastian well, McCoy. Say, you go ahead first. Well, we were talking before recording about it, and you you brought up Power of the Doctor, and me and Kev both were kind of like, oh, okay. But you absolutely reminded me of all the things I really did like about it. Like, you're you're making me want to go watch it again yeah. right now. So, thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I like. Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of great things about it. And, like, on a fan service level, I'm purely that – you spent time in the Doctor Who trenches. You know what's going on. Like on that level, it does satisfy. It's it's a very well, shallow level of satisfaction, but I think it is like satisfying on that level. It's fun and and propulsive. And even if it's nonsense, it's at least a better kind of nonsense than a lot of other Chibnall stuff. I agree with you on that. Right. Well, and I think that it it's good that we're talking about it on your podcast, the two of you. Because it fe it feels very big finish in a lot yeah, of ways, yeah absolutely right? yeah. like like all the old doctors all the old doctors popping in for cameos like that's that's the kind of thing that happens in big finish stories because 
they can record it in the studio or whatever. Um, whereas obviously here they had to actually bring them in and dress them up and all that. But, um, and I mean, like the, the, I mean, you didn't, you perhaps rightly didn't mention the master's storyline in the episode, but that feels very big. Thinner. That feels like something Alex, Alexander McQueen would have done as the master. You know what I mean? Um, right. So yeah. I, and uh, yeah. And obviously we're all big Finnish fans. So no, just we're all big Finnish fans. So I don't mean that yeah. as, as a slap in the face, just, it was, it was interesting to see an episode that felt that much like a big Finnish story. Yeah. Uh, talking who do you still available on every podcatcher you can use? I think not everyone, <laughs> but most of them. Um, yeah. Sacha Dwan, I was just saying was, I like his performance a lot, even when they never really gave him a great story. <laughs> He's always a very fun presence. And yes, all the old companions are fun presence. All the old doctors are fun presence. Really like the three lines they gave Paul <laughs> McGann. That was, and that he didn't bother showing up for wardrobe that day. And they had like a little right in the line about it. I don't know what the actual story is, but it sure feels that way. I don't do robes. Even even that was lovely. Just just an eighth doctor and the seventh doctor having a little back and forth. Yeah, that's fun. Um, this is also Paul McGann's first ever first ever appearance in an episode of the TV show Doctor Who. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, he's in the TV yeah, movie. He's in a he's in a web short. Yeah. No, technically speaking, you know? if, you, yeah, if you want to split hairs, absolutely. That's a correct statement. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Weird, but true. Yeah. Once again, we see that um, Chris Chibnall's creative instincts might be right, but they don't always necessarily manage to be right in quite the correct fashion. Yeah. <laughs> you mean he should have brought, brought McGann in for an episode to do a lot more? Is that what you're saying? That's that you're very, saying? very much what I'm saying, yes. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's something that RTD will give us when we move forward. You know what? One last take from Power of the Doctor. I hope Gemma Red gave us Kate Stewart comes back because I really like her. <laughs> and it's just nice to have like the one thread of continuity between all these eras has been. I guess she was in the Davies era. So maybe. But she feels like such a Davies oh, really character, does. doesn't she? Even though she's from yeah. Moffat and Chibnall. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, we're going to get infinite big finish stories with her or whatever. But I really hope Davies also taps her. And because she's such like Brings a great. Back, yeah. Yeah, like like the way the Brigadier would keep showing up in Classic Who, even way past his initial era. I, I just really like Kate, and I think she's a good presence just to have on the show. So, right. yeah, it was nice seeing her be back there for the curtain call as well. I, I hope uh, I hope Sasha Darwin comes back as well. I've got to be honest. I would yeah. like, I'd like to see Sasha Darwin written by um, RTD. And, you know, that's that's fine. We've had Masters cross uh, showrunners before. So, so um, yeah, if there's, if, there's, if there's a part... Uh, well, I mean, I'd love Joe Martin to come back, but I have no idea how that's going to be possible. So if we, yeah. if, if we put that to one side, then, uh, then uh, yeah, it'd be really great to have uh, Sasha Dallin's Master back across, uh, across the RTD2 era as well. Right. Well, and I, I really liked what the Master... Like, the, basically, the Master had one brief moment of interaction with, with all the old non-doctor characters, right? He taunted uh, Tegan about her auntie Vanessa. He, he told Kate Stewart, your dad was an idiot, which is very simple, but very effective. And uh, Ace said, the last time I saw you, you were a cat. And Mm -hmm. all three of those were such nice little moments, like, especially the auntie Vanessa thing. I love the idea that like anytime the master has has traumatized the doctor's companion, he keeps it in his head just in case he ever sees them again, right? Tegan right. filed away that her aunt's <laughs> name was Vanessa in case I get to rub it in her face that I killed her, right? Like hundreds of mastery. years, mul- multiple incarnations. He's got to keep the one liner in his pocket at all times. That's so, <laughs> exactly, that's a great exactly. Point. Yeah, so I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it is. As much as you can find the Twitter thread of me like kvetching about it, but when you end of the day, it's it wasn't an awful way to go out. So yeah, I. But and and yeah, I. The real frustrating thing is waiting a full calendar year at time of record, eleven months by the time you hear this, but still for the next episode to come out in time with the 60th anniversary, and hope with hopefully with the new American money rolling in, and hopefully that doesn't. I don't know. I don't saying it would compromise Doctor Who feels ridiculous because it's Doctor Who, but you know, I, I still hope that Davies gets to retain his creative control and uh, that they're good 
episodes of television that we get like some of that old magic back uh little nostalgic burst with having David Tennant back in the role. Very excited. I love that he did the what, what, what. It's so simple. You knew he was going to do it. It still gave me like full body chills. <laughs> well, the, the the thing that I really loved is the callback to when he, when the 10th doctor was brand new, he r- runs his tongue across his teeth and says new teeth. That's weird. And in this one, he runs mm-hmm. his tongue across his teeth and says, I know those teeth. Yeah. Very very wordly. And it's like such a perfect callback that like you have Mm -hmm. to think about Doctor Who regeneration scenes a lot to even notice it, I think, you know? Right. Uh, But it's such a nice touch. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I'm just like those few seconds we get of him. It just makes me so excited from that sort of nostalgic point of view. But then I'm also very assured knowing that Shudi Gatwa and Yasmin Finney are going to take the show after a couple episodes. Like, it's not just going to be a full-on um, legacy nostalgia fest from here on out. That right, right. Just get the people back. Just get the people who used to watch watching again, hook them back in, and then keep them there with something fresh. I, I think it's a great strategy. All righty then. Well, I think before we fall through a charge vacuum embankment into eSpace, it's probably time to wrap this episode up and move on to plugs. So, um, Anthony, what would you care to plug for us? Uh, well, as as I have been for the past five years or so, I'm the co-host of Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast brought to you by ToughPigs.com. And that is the podcast where we watch Muppet movies two minutes at a time. We are about halfway through Muppet Christmas Carol right now. And uh, I mean, it's right there. Like I said, we we watch a two minute clip from the Muppet movies in order and talk about them. And uh, at first, most of our guests were our friends and that was great. And that's still great. And we still have our friends on a lot. But lately, we've gotten a lot more people involved in the movies. We had Paul Williams on the show recently. We had uh, Dave Goals, who plays the great Gonzo, among other characters. Uh, we had we actually had, on a recent episode, do you guys know the song When Love Is Gone that was cut out of the Muppet Christmas Carol and now it's back? That Scrooge's ex-girlfriend Belle yeah. sings in the movie? Well, we had Meredith Braun, who played Belle in the movie, mm-hmm. on the podcast to talk about it. Oh my god. Oh, and awesome. that was a real, yeah, it was a real thrill. It was really nice of her to do it, and uh, it was, I think, a great conversation. That one hasn't come out yet, but... Uh, coming up soon and and really exciting to talk to her might be out by the time this this episode drops i'm not sure but uh yeah so it's it's if you like muppets i would definitely recommend checking out our show so moving right along i believe this will drop right after christmas if that helps you with the time okay then it then it that episode i think comes out on december 19th should be out Oh, perfect fantastic well thank you very much and thank you for joining us on our little trek today always anytime Can't, can't wait to come back and talk about some other hopefully much more serious episode right of course yeah i'll i mean i'll be sliding people to season two list when we get closer to there um right you you can find us uh at talk trek to you on twitter and i'm on twitter at kev kozer k-e-v-k-o-e-s-e-r jj's writings are at www.jjmccrory.scott m-c-q-u-a-r-r-i-e.scott you can also find me frequently guesting on the podcast Total Massacre about action movies on hiatus when I am recording this episode, hopefully back by the time you hear this episode. Uh, JG's other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew D can go through the Beatles song by song. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and whatever podcast you use to help other people find it. And spread the word, just verbally or on Twitter or wherever, because... Yeah, we'd love the more people to discover this show. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And like I say, Anthony, thank you very much for joining us for this episode. Next week, we are going to be diving into the Galileo 7. So we're going to be very much shifting from comedy to tragedy. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. (laughs) 